You know what's interesting is I can read a men's health magazine and simultaneously polish off a bag of chips. I don't have a problem. This is not a... I have no problem with this paradox. Um, I mean, I eat them, you know, to borrow from Brian Regan, like a wood chipper. I mean, like, the, like those chips are just being fed into particularly regular chips or Doritos. And, uh, you know, if I, if I was to do that, which of course I can, um, I would be demonstrating a huge disconnect. A disconnect between what I know I should want, um, what I say I want, and what I actually want. And we all can agree intellectually and theologically that God's grace is sufficient for us when we're going through hard times and we're going through difficult times. But, but functionally, we can look towards something else to fill that hunger, to satisfy that craving in those difficult times. And we do this because we all have a vision of how our life should be. We all have a vision of how our life should be turning out. And when things happen, either outside us, culturally or relationally, economically, politically, or when things are going on inside us, mentally, physiologically, physically, we can feel like that vision we have of our life is totally being threatened. And our hearts are in this state of craving all the time. And because our disposition is that they're disoriented, very much needing God's grace to reorient them, very much like a piano that's out of tune, constantly needing to be brought back into tune, our hearts can chase after all kinds of things. And this morning's text is from Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to look at how it is that the beautiful grace of God invites us into peace and freedom. We've been going through a four-week series on gospel freedom. And the first two weeks we were in Romans 6 on how the grace of God liberates and frees us from the sin that's inside us. But these last two weeks we've been looking at Philippians 4 on how God's grace liberates us from all kinds of manner of problems outside us. It's very liberating, the gospel. The promise of what God has done through Jesus Christ for us. It's amazing. And so I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading verses 4 through 13. This is the text that we read last Sunday. I'm going to read it again. And we're going to spiral deeper into this. And we're going to trust that as we do, that in a beautiful and a fresh way, the Word of God and the Spirit of God does a great work in all of us. So Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 4. To 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, my brethren, my brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, re- you 
uh, have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is God's word. Now, if you think about the hardest, darkest, most burdensome thing in your life, the type of thing that causes you to lose sleep over, whatever it is that your heart turns to in those moments, in, that, in the moments of high stress, whatever our hearts turn to that's smaller than God, hoping that that's going to give us rest, Whatever it is that we turn to, it's a little bit like a cheap drug, a a cheap drug that promises this high that we can't ever really get, and every time we keep going back to it, there's a diminishing return. But God's grace, God's gospel, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, it's not a diminishing return. It's not like a cheap drug. We don't dance and celebrate grace the first week that we heard about it, but then as the years tick on, the good news kind of becomes old news. It's just really not a big deal. See, the good news for you and I is always good. Because every Sunday that we darken the doors and we come in to worship, we need his grace. Fresh and new. Nobody's ever walked into church ever in the entire history of church and said, you know what? (laughs) I don't need grace anymore. This is amazing how all of the T's are crossed and all of the I's are dotted and there's nothing going on in my life that requires for me to bend my knee and say, oh God, would you give me grace? The, the good news of the gospel is always news and it's always good because we always need it. And so that's why uh, the beauty of what's offered in God's grace uh, is this peace that we get in this text. So we're going to um, look at two things this morning. We're going to ask ask the scriptures two questions, the same questions we asked last week. And they're this, what is the peace of God? And secondly, how do we enjoy the peace of God? And so when we look at what the peace of God is, in verse 7, what Paul gives us is that the peace of God surpasses all understanding. It guards our hearts, it guards our minds in Christ. And again, when we think about the context, he's in prison while he's writing this. He's not, he's not in a comfortable condo overlooking the Aegean Sea, writing a motivational book to make people feel better about their lives. He's in prison. So there is something over the course of Paul's life that he's grasped, that he's wanting the church to to grasp. He's wanting the church to enjoy. And so the important thing about that context that Paul is writing this to us from prison, the reason why it's important to remember that, is because it gives us insight into the Christian life. It's that the Christian life is uh, not exempt from trials or tragedies. But the Christian life has a radical promise of hope and grace and peace in our trials and in our tragedies. If you're a human being on planet Earth, you're not going to live a suffering-free life. The Christian faith is not a promise that you're going to all of a sudden move from having a, a life full of toil to a life that's now devoid of problems. That's not the message of the Scripture. We don't have a God in the Bible who's always constantly throughout all of the history of his children extracted them from suffering. We have something better. 
Because, of course, that's not realistic. Who has a life devoid of suffering? What we have is a God who's constantly, constantly, throughout all of redemptive history, with his children in their suffering, strengthening them in their suffering, and delivering them in the midst of their suffering, and that in the end, spoiler alert on the end of the Bible, has promised to eradicate all suffering. And so we live in this place of the already and not yet, with great hope, great peace, and that's what Paul is drawing our attention to here. So again, it's really authoritative, because Paul knows that God is faithful on the basis of Christ's cross, not on the basis of his circumstance. The modern problem, uh, how we think about faith today, because it's kind of been baptized in consumerism, is that God is faithful if I can, uh, if He gives me what I what I want and what I need, as I've asked Him in prayer. In other words, it's not the cross that determines if God is faithful; it's the check marks. So I've asked for this. Did He do it? Yes or no? Well, if He did, then check He's faithful, and if He didn't the jury's out. I'm not sure. This has always been historically the the problem for the church in crisis is that if we don't look to the cross to be like, is God faithful or not? I'm going through this thing. My life is on fire. Things are not good. Or perhaps your life is mundane. Perhaps nothing's on fire and you kind of wish something would catch on fire because you wake up in the morning and you go and you do your job and you eat your, you know, your dinner and then you wake up in the morning and then you have your Cheerios and you go to your job and you just kind of feel like you're, you're just living in this hamster wheel and you're thinking to yourself, you know, it would be good if something happened because I kind of feel like in my life nothing happens. You know, neither of these scenarios, we, we, then we tend to think about God's faithfulness based on our check marks. And not the cross. And that's not a good trajectory. So what Paul gives us, which is why this is so important, to remember where was he when he wrote this, is that he's defining the goodness and the grace and the love of God by what Christ did at the cross and not by his present circumstances. And because, and again, the idea that everything's going to be okay is not the scriptural narrative. It is going to be okay in the resurrection, but I I mean in the here and now. See, Paul's not writing from prison. He's saying, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. What's the first thing that you and I want to tell somebody when something horrible happens? I mean, it's, all, it's almost a reflex, right? Something terrible happens. doesn't matter what it is. And the first thing we say to them is we go, okay, it's okay, okay it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. It's a, we, we, are, we, are, we have welded ourselves to everything is going to be okay. Now, the scripture gives us something more powerful than that. You see, if the promise of the gospel was just, well, everything's going to be okay, everybody's going to have a crisis when everything is not okay. The promise of the gospel is that, no, 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 even when everything's not okay, there's something that God is offering me. See, I think that's what everybody in here, starting with the preacher, actually really needs. I mean, who needs anything when everything is okay? I mean, anybody can, I mean, you don't need anything, that's easy. But that's not the, the narrative. It's, it, that's not the scriptural narrative, but it's too small. Sometimes we think that the scriptural, the scriptural view of peace is, sounds like we would read this text and we're expecting Paul to you know, say, you know, hey, uh, hey uh, church in Philippi, I'm in prison, but ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Next verse. Ooh, child, things will get lighter. Keep reading with me, church. Next verse. Someday we'll get it together and we'll get it all done. Like, that's what we want the scripture to tell us, right? But the problem is that's too small. 
ooh, child, everything's going to be okay. Things are going to get lighter. Things are going to get brighter. You know, second opinions, 316. That's not, that's too small. And so Paul doesn't come out and say that. Paul isn't presenting the peace of God that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. He's not presenting it like a force field that keeps us from suffering. He presents it like an IV that keeps our souls alive and nourishes us in the middle of our suffering. This beautiful grace, being united to Christ and the benefit of that and what that means, this is what he gives us. Consider that in Matthew chapter 4, I just noticed, by the way, that I didn't start my, my timer. So just so you all know, I've been preaching for one minute and 23 seconds, all right? Okay, just kidding. I'll try and... Consider this. In here, here Paul is saying. Um, here, here, here Paul is saying that there is a there is a peace that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds. Consider when uh, if our Christian faith is not a force field, which it isn't. Consider in Matthew four when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. What is one of the temptations of Christ? If you recall, the devil quotes Psalm ninety one. He hasn't, actually doesn't quote the whole psalm. He just plucks a verse out. So he, the devil deploys some cut-and-paste theology. He pulls a verse out of Psalm 91. And he goes, hey, Jesus, um, you don't have to suffer. See, the Bible actually says you don't have to suffer, Jesus. See, actually, the Bible says, why don't you um, call on the angels? Because he, the Bible says he gives his angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91. Now, last time I checked, the devil was a liar and not a theologian. So I would encourage you not to interpret the scripture like the devil. Are we all on the same page with this, right? Satanic hermeneutics is not going to help you when you're going through suffering. Right? The devil says to Jesus, you don't have to suffer. In fact, you can have all the glory without the suffering. This is the temptation right, that he comes to. Because when you read all of Psalm 91... It, looks, it lo- looks very much like, wow, nothing bad is going to ever happen to us. So, of course, it's a messianic psalm, and it's speaking about Christ, ultimately, who fulfills it. And at the end of Psalm 91, which the devil doesn't get to, it talks about deliverance and uh, long life, which is actually a, uh, a prophecy about the resurrection of, of Christ. It's the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's that in the end, even through all of his suffering, even though Christ dies, in the end, he gets long life. And that's Psalm 91 in a nutshell. But the reason I bring that up to you is because the way that the devil tried to tempt uh, Jesus in the wilderness, hey, you don't have to suffer. And now here we have Paul in prison, and he's saying to the church, he's not saying, he's not saying to the church, you don't have to suffer, because he is suffering. He's saying there's something powerful. There is a secret I have learned that is deeper in suffering, that actually guards our hearts and guards our minds. It's this peace of God. It's this incredible radical peace right that's why uh jesus says in john uh, 11 and i touched on this last week again that jesus says i am the resurrection and the life and if you believe in me though you die you will live so in other words death comes knocking and jesus doesn't even bat an eyelash that should tell us something that should tell us that we are united to the death proof savior of the universe who is holding the world together by word of his power and that's a very safe place to be when things are not good in our lives or around us or in us. That's where the hope is. 
And so how is it that we enjoy, if that is the peace of God, if it is that deep, if it does do that guarding of our hearts and our minds, how do we enjoy it? In verse 6, Paul comes out, we talked about this last week, so let's go deeper into this, this command. Paul says, don't be anxious. He says, don't be anxious. And um, he's not being trite. He's not being insensitive. A lot of us in here have been anxious. Some of us in here struggle with anxiety big time. Some of us in here struggle with depression. You know, if you struggle with anxiety and depression, you're not a second-class citizen in the church. There's not something wrong with you that, you know, all the other Christians have somehow cracked some code and they've figured out how to live. I mean, that's not, none of that is true. But if you're a person who deals with anxiety and suffering, when Paul says, don't be anxious, and when Jesus says, don't be anxious, they're not saying, tisk tisk, there's something wrong with you. They're actually inviting you very boldly and very unapologetically out of your anxiety. They're inviting you out of it, not by your own power. You can't. How are you going to do that? They're not saying, you know, solo bootstraps, uh, try a little harder and don't be anxious. When Paul talks about meditation, he's not saying think of sunshine and rainbows and get yourself out of that dark funk that you're in. You know, it's been gray for a week. It's going to be gray for another week. That's all it takes for some people to physiologically just be down, right? As Susan's head shrinks in the front row. I mean, if it's gray for five days in a row, Susan just wakes up, you know, she kind of sounds like Eeyore a little bit. I don't know. How that happened. She normally doesn't. She's usually very passionate and exciting and very funny. But if it's gray for four or five days, then, you know, it's not good. She's not the only one in here. Who else that doesn't enjoy five days of, yeah, I know. It, it, see, that was a lot of hands. Wow, you should have been looking. That would have been very encouraging. The whole church gets depressed when it's gray. Um, hey, listen, this is a real thing. So what is Paul saying? He's saying in the midst of that, he's inviting us into something beautiful and something powerful. And not by your willpower. By the power of grace, and I'll show you. I'll show it to you. He's not being indifferent, right? Um, there's a manifestation of this peace in us that's powerful enough to actually lead us out. But Paul didn't learn that in the in that that afternoon, either. You see, when Paul writes this, he's at the end of his life. The book of Philipp, the, the letter to the Philippians, he's at the end of his life. He's been through stuff. He didn't wake up that morning in a funk and then later that afternoon go, I, I figured it out. I've got to write this down. This is a lifetime of experiencing and seeing the faithfulness of God, of going through hard times. You know, if you read, there's, uh, I won't go there because it's going to take too much time, but when, when uh, they were doing a missionary journey um, in Asia, Paul writes in the book of Acts, uh, he says, you know, we were sorrowful to the point of death. He talks about being like seriously depressed. He's seeing the, the gospel doing great works over here and then nothing over here, and he's depressed. So Paul's been through it. He's not being trite. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 6, and Paul is saying, you know, don't be anxious, they're inviting us to look at something. They're inviting us to lift our eyes. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, before we get to the text I just read, there's a lifting of the eyes. There's a, you've, you've got to... You've got to, in the midst of your torment, in the midst of the hard things you're going through, church, we've got to lift our eyes. There's an invitation to gaze on God, on the gospel, on Christ. And I don't mean just in a vague way. You know, it's like, I'm just going to kind of think about God vaguely. That's not going to work. The concept of God is so ambiguous. So how could that make anybody feel better? It's very concrete what Paul has done. For example, when you think about uh, Jesus saying, don't worry, don't be anxious. He says, look at the flowers. Look at the birds. He's actually in... See, the way to get out of our anxiety is to actually reflect on our smallness and God's greatness. 
What does our culture tell us to do? The modern pop theology is going to say, you're suffering. No, you're great. You're awesome. You're better than that. You're bigger than that. You're bigger, better, faster, stronger. Like that's the conversation of the pop theologian when you're, when you're in anxiety. But the truth is, no, 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 no. It's the other way around. It's when I'm suffering and when I'm anxious, I don't think about, no, I'm better than this. I'm bigger than this. I'm stronger than this. It's like, you know what? God is bigger than this. What he has done for me in Christ and united me to Christ. You know, I'm his child now. I start thinking through the implications of the gospel. Jesus says, look at the, look at the flowers. Look at the birds. Think about how small you are. In the middle of our anxiety, we realize, you know what? God is pretty big. I wouldn't even be here if he didn't write genetic information into my code. And if it weren't for those 3.2 billion double strands of DNA in my genetic code, I wouldn't even be here. So I can probably relax. There's something in, the, there's something in recognizing my smallness and God's greatness and his wisdom. And that is what Paul has done in that great, in that great marveling. And so when Jesus says, don't worry, it's not going to add one cubit to your stature. Right? There's that wisdom, because he's, he's, he's not being trite. When Paul's saying, don't be anxious, you know, but be thankful and everything. Same idea. You know, there was, a, uh, there was a funny movie that the kids watched the other day called uh, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And in it, you know, he, uh, he, you know, he takes a page out of Jesus' textbook on anxiety. And, uh, and, his, and he loses his job, and his wife says to him, Aren't you freaking out that you still don't have a job? And he says, no, then I wouldn't have a job and I'd be freaking out. You know, that's his... And uh, that's kind of Matthew 6. That's Philippians 4. Um, you, know, <laughs> you rip that off. Good on him. To borrow from, uh, from Tim Keller, worry is believing that God won't get it right. And bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. And what Paul is inviting us into is this beautiful rest of grace, this peace. And so in verse 5, he gives the command, he says, you know, um, be thankful in everything. And again, you can't be thankful for something if it hasn't changed, if all of your hope is on a circumstance changing. So there is that, there is that deeper call there. Because the consumer idea of faith is that God isn't relevant unless he's helpful. God is, uh, prayer isn't really, there's no point in praying if this thing that I ask for doesn't happen. In that regard, we're not really relating to God like a loving father who has us and cares for us. We're relating to him like a genie in a lamp. Right? The cultural conversation or the consumerism view of faith is it's only relevant if, if, it, if, I go for, if it can get me from A to B. And if it can't, I'm going to kind of move on. I'm kind of worshiping at the altar of pragmatism. But what Paul's inviting us into, this thankfulness and prayer, even though nothing changes, is, is that it changes us. You see, that's what's gone on with Paul is that through his prayer and in his meditation, it hasn't been about earning or being a better Christian because there is no such thing. Right? You're either God's child or you aren't. And the only people that qualify to be God's children are bad people. So if you're, if you're not, if you weren't once a bad, uh, uh, if you weren't once a, a, a sinner needing the grace of God, and then in the grace of God, it's God's child constantly needing the grace. If you've somehow become a grace graduate, and then you don't qualify for this peace. Because the peace is only available for those of us who are willing to bend our knee and be like, God, I need you. Oh, God, would you help me? Would you be with me? And so he invites us into thankfulness, not because we're going to get what we received for in the manner we received it, but thankfulness because we know God is wise enough to give us 
what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. He's that good, he's that wise, he's that loving. And so there's, then he invites in verse 8 into meditation and verse 9 into imitation. So how do we enjoy the peace? He gives us meditation and he gives us imitation. And not just religious rote, not the idea of, you know, uh, if, you, if you read your Bible and if you pray and if you do these things, you're somehow good, you know. It's not, it's not a conversation of good and gooder, <laughs> okay? It's not, we don't do any of the spiritual disciplines because we want to go from good to great. We do them because we want rest. We need rest. We need renewal. All of, the, all of Paul's call to imitate me, notice what I've done, meditate on God's grace. Paul is an expert in the law. So he knows Christ already did everything. So he's not calling them to meditate on things so that they can somehow get better. He's inviting them to meditate on things so that they can have peace. And that they can rest. And in that, enjoy their great freedom. Because meditation, right, it's not the emptying of the mind like the Eastern idea. It's the filling of the mind. The filling of the mind of God's goodness. And so if we're going to imitate God's rhythm of worship, or sorry, Paul's rhythm of worship, then what we notice as we read through Philippians 4 is actually, I'm not doing any of these things for God's benefit. I'm doing them for mine. These are gracious gifts. Why would you not just gather each week so that we can worship and we can rest and have God's grace minister to us, but why would you, during the week, around your dinner table, want to read the scriptures with your children and teach your children the scriptures? And Why would you do that? It's not a conversation about, I want them to grow up to be good. It's got about good. How can they enjoy and live to the glory of God and enjoy this race and have grace and have peace in these hard times? How can I have them? The rhythm of worship is this invitation into this great rest. It's not about, you know, religious behavior in any way. It's a gift. And so when we gather our worship, Paul says, imitate me. So that's why our worship is gospel-shaped. If you notice it, if you look in the order of worship, you'll see that it's gospel-shaped. God calls us, and he cleanses us, and he communes with us, and he commissions us. It's the shape of the gospel. Our worship is gospel-shaped. And your homes, there's that rhythm that becomes gospel-shaped. We come to God, we're thankful for him. There's things going on in our lives where we go to him for his grace, we go to him for his peace. We know that he's with us. And then you can relax. All of you uh, young people who are in high school wondering what you're going to do after you get out, those of you who are in university and you're up to your eyeballs and study, wondering what you're going to do, how, what is my path going to look like, there's a great peace for you. Because you know that on the other side of every decision that you're making, God is there. And he's working all of it out for the good of your salvation and for his glory. And there's great peace and there's great rest there. And so I'm going to close with this. When you look at verse 11 and Paul says, so what I've learned through all of this through the course of my life, is that in whatever situation I'm in, to be content. <clears throat> and that contentment, that peace, again, he didn't learn that in the afternoon. When you look at Paul's life, he's preaching the gospel, and then he's suffering, and then they're stoning him, and then he goes to another city, and then they try and stone him, and then he, he's preaching, he's been through hardships, and then he's got run through shipwrecks. Right? They're, lowering, they're lowering him out of buildings in baskets for his life. I mean, I, w- I always wish he wrote something when he was in the basket. I think that would have been a great letter. Welp, I'm all in now. You know, like, what, what do you do? You're just like, I'm being lowered out of a building in a basket. Okay, so he's been through it. All of these things have happened in his life. That's why, and then you get that great story, that great account of, of him going and after the shipwreck and he's preaching the gospel and the serpent comes out and bites him. 
And everybody says, he's going to die. And the Bible says that he shake, shake, shakes it off into the fire. Right? I, I imagine he would have been like, you've got to be kidding me. Really? I mean, after everything that I've... Oh, God. You know? He, this is a lifetime of seeing God's faithfulness that Paul gives this to us. So be encouraged, church. It's not like, hey, I just listened to a four-week series on gospel freedom... And uh, now I'm totally free. I've learned the same. I mean, if God does do that in you, then that is awesome. And you should dance if God does that. But for many of us, that's not going to be the, the story. It's going to be a lifetime of connecting ourselves to the gospel IV of meditation and of prayer and of rest and of worship and of trusting God and coming back and resting, resting in his grace. And so it's a life of learning of God's faithfulness that enables Paul to say this is great work of grace, where he says, I am content whether I'm on the top or I'm on the bottom, whether I am free and I'm having wine and bread with my buddies or I'm in a damp cell in Rome, I know how to do all of it because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This commentary, not on the excellence with which we do tasks, I can do all things through Christ, but the faithfulness and the rest with which we can approach life and circumstance because of God's great grace. And reality is God's ally. As I was talking with Susan about this sermon, she said, you know, reality is God's ally because he'll always take whatever it is that we're using in our life, that's happening in our lives, even the horrible things, even the terrible things that are nothing like God and nothing like his nature. And God will use those things for his glory to draw us into, into his rest and the peace of his gospel. So good news, church. Regardless of what's going on in your heart, in your life, with your children, in your marriage, in your, in your soul, at your school, on campus, in your dating relationships, in your, in your parenting, regardless of what it is that is going on that's causing your heart to become anxious, God is offering his great grace to you to find rest. So that united to Christ, you are not a slave to the dispens- that disposition in your heart to go and chase some small, temporal, insufficient thing and hope that it gives you the peace that you only find in God. This is the glory of his gospel and what he offers you. Let's pray.